The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Let's Get Radical is brought to you by Avalara, sales tax automation for businesses of all sizes. Visit us on the web at avalara.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R-A.com. Welcome to the business show that will change the way you look at your business practice, your organization, and yourself. This is Let's Get Radical with Liz Gold and Jody Paydar. On today's show, you'll get the straight scoop on what it means to be radical and how it can help you become the next success story. Now, here are your hosts, Jody and Liz. Welcome back. I'm Jody Paydar, and I'm here with Liz Gold, and you are listening to Let's Get Radical. And we are live. Live at the AICPA Engage event. How cool is this? It's very cool. I mean, it's like so nice to be live. It is. It's really amazing. We're having a blast. And everybody's getting lunch and stuff like that. So we've got lots of listeners here as well. So um, we are here with a big... Um, thought leader. So, um, Michael Kitsis, and I'm going to have you introduce yourself in, you know, in a couple of minutes. But my question is, is, um, you know, what did you do in Vegas last night? What I do in Vegas last <laughs> night? So there is, uh, we're all here in, uh, for the AICPA conference. And the interesting thing about the AICPA event here, particularly this year at Engage, is we're bringing together lots of different communities. So there's a personal financial planning community where I've historically had a lot of involvement. We've got a group for Zayance Estate Planning, a group for Sophisticated Tax. And so I was actually at a dinner event yesterday. We're bringing together the young CPAs across all the different channels who are interested in starting to build in the direction of doing personal financial advising and trying to understand what that's all about. And so uh, there are a couple of great young CPA leaders in the personal financial planning section that, that put forth this dinner event and invited everyone in. Morningstar came to host it. And uh, so I had I had dinner with about 40 young CPAs who are trying to get excited about doing financial planning. Oh my wow. God, that's awesome. That is awesome. And and we're here in Vegas, so we, we, we also had some really good food, <laughs> which didn't hurt. Yeah. So um, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about um, you, your background, and um, you know what you do in your everyday life. Sure. So uh, my name is Michael Kitsis. I'm a partner and the director of wealth management for Pinnacle Advisory Group, which is a, a independent wealth management firm in the Baltimore, Washington area. Uh, we manage about $1.8 billion for over a thousand clients. And so I, I live most of my life in an advisory firm, but uh, I'm also uh, one foot out. So I, I spend a lot of my time writing and speaking back to the industry. I publish a, a blog for financial advisors called The Nerd's Eye View at kitsis.com, a, a podcast called Financial Advisor Success. And, and I go out and speak at a lot of different industry conferences, uh, including events like this, talking about trends in financial planning and, and how advisors are using technology. So, so I got to ask, your dinner last night, you're with a b- bunch of young, you know, fina- wannabe financial planners, yep. right? So what are, what are the top questions on their minds? What are they asking you? What are they talking about? So I, I find most questions go in... in a couple of very common directions and threads. One, just if you've lived the world of being a CPA, uh, it, particularly if you're coming from the audit side and, and in a big four accounting firm, but, but even if you've been out maybe on the independent side doing small business accounting and tax, just understanding like, 
So I, I know how to do my tax and accounting stuff and audit. Like, how do you do financial planning? Mm. Right? And just figuring out, like, <laughs> what actually do you do for people that they pay you for? Because that's, that's right. kind of a new skill to learn. Right. So, so we get some questions around that. Uh, we get some questions around just mechanically, how do, you do, how do you do it? Right? So financial advising has its own myriad of reg- rules and regulations. Uh, frankly, in many ways, I find it w- even worse than what happens on the CPA side. Because at least on the CPA side, like, I've got a state board of accountancy. I can look up their rules and I know what the deal is. When you get to the advising side, uh, you may be subject to state securities regulators. You may be subject to federal securities regulators. You may be subject to FINRA. You may have state insurance regulator requirements. Like all these different regulatory rules overlap, and so we find lots of compliance questions come mm, in. And, right. and uh, you know, one of the the uh, business I'm involved with is a group called XY Planning Network, and we help advisors uh, launch advisory firms if they want to serve young people. So doing financial planning for Gen X and Gen Y clients, where you can't do the classic, I'll just manage their money and give them advice because they don't have pools of money to manage. They just need the advice. Mm-hmm. And so we show them how to do fee-for-service financial planning models and launch their firms. And and one of the biggest questions that we get there all the time from young advisors coming in who want to serve their peers is just, how do I navigate all this regulatory stuff and all the compliance rules? So lots of questions around that. And then some just around the... The, the evolving role of technology, how technology is coming, uh, you know, it's coming to the accounting side of the industry, it's coming to the financial advising side of the industry, and it creates a lot of questions about, so what exactly is the value of the human, and what is it that's ultimately <laughs> going to be audited, automated away with technology, mm-hmm. and, and you know, lots of different professions are going through that, but that, that anxiety definitely, I think, is starting to filter in the advising side as well. Like the good news of the technology is it really leverages you. The bad news is, and it might replace you if you don't make sure you're bringing value mm-hmm. to the table as well. Mm-hmm. And you just did a keynote on this, correct, yesterday? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I had a, a session yesterday talking about, uh, at least my view, my take as someone that's followed the industry for a very long time and lives it in a firm, about where is that balancing point at the end of the day between what the technology will do and what the humans will still end up doing. And, and I'm actually very upbeat on the future of financial advising and, and our potential role, but I do think it changes in some very fundamental ways. You know, most of us historically in, in knowledge professions like this, we have lived in a world where uh, I've got this expertise, right? I went to school, I got credentials, I learned it. You don't have that knowledge. You come to me, you pay me, I lay some knowledge on you. Like that's the fundamental knowledge worker transaction. Uh, except now you can look up like 99.9% of anything we've ever known as a species right. on a smartphone in 10 seconds. Right. And so just getting paid for the stuff that's in your head as an expert is starting to break down as a business model. And so when we look at where it goes from there, to me, it's all around a, a shift from uh, working with the knowledge to actually working in a relationship with a client where my value is the advice, the handholding, being your accountability partner. Right? Like if information alone was enough, I could solve most of the world's problems. I just make a website that's so like eat less, exercise more, and a couple other healthy <laughs> habits, and that would be that. Uh, but the truth is many of these are challenges of, of habits and behavior as well. And what we know from a lot of the research on behavior change across lots of different uh, uh, industries and domains is that peer-to-peer accountability, having coaches, 
really works is incredibly effective. Uh, and so I'm very upbeat on the role of financial advising in the future, but I think it shifts much more to this, uh, this positioning of a coach, a co-pilot, a navigator, someone that goes along with the client on the mm-hmm. journey and helps them navigate the, the stormy seas that arises. And we use all that technology stuff that's coming along to take things that, frankly, we used to do and used to get paid for, and we're just going to automate them and move up the value chain. But it's a lot of pressure on advisors that you, you have to move up the value chain here. I mean, we are at one of those inflection points. Right. And so, um, you know, you talked a lot about the young people, but how about um, the boomers? How are they adapting and changing to, you know, the tools and kind of this new way of working together? Are, are you seeing pushback? Are you seeing just a wanting to learn? How are they reacting? So, you know, there's a lot of views out there that technology is is like just a thing about working for young people and not and not older folks. But it really does span the spectrum. So our our advisory firm clients, uh, uh, we actually work predominantly with baby boomers. Our XY Planning Network group is mostly for planning for young folks, but our advisory firm is is predominantly for baby boomers. And we see the technology adoption with the baby boomers. Not not all, but frankly, not all millennials like playing with technology toys either. We still a wide range of human beings, uh, but we see a lot of adoption even amongst baby boomer clients. I mean, we, we seem to have this view in our head uh, as advisors that older clients won't want to use technology. Same, well, do your clients watch Netflix? Yeah. Well, do, do they ever <laughs> FaceTime with their grandkids? Yeah. Okay, then they can do a video chat with you because they've already done all the things and they have the bandwidth and like yeah. they've already checked all the boxes. And I think sometimes we, we either don't give our clients enough credit or we're so comfortable with just doing the face-to-face meetings the way that they've always been done that we're not taking advantage of the technology tools that are there. And frankly, we've seen for a lot of clients, they're happier using the technology. I mean, it does cool things and it saves everyone time. Right. No, I I love this because I run a cloud firm, so I'm a CPA as well, and I just got licensed. And so what like I think is is that like anyone can do technology it's just you know a mindset and a want to learn so do you see that um, the advisors who are adopting the technology are able to scale or grow faster than the old school firms or not or are they exponentially moving very much so so it's been an interesting progression in in uh, in our side of the industry that for a couple of years, going back like five or six years ago, when, when kind of the cloud technology really started getting momentum in financial advising space, uh, there was lots of discussion about the technology and some people that were tech-savvy adopters, but it was just kind of this theory that it would make you more efficient. Over the past two or three years, now we're actually starting to see some of the industry benchmarking studies coming forward, showing this very rapidly widening gap between the tech-savvy adopters and the rest, and the tech-savvy adopters are starting to drive uh, better profit margins, better revenue growth, uh, better retention rates with clients. I mean, almost every metric that we use to, to measure the effectiveness of advisory firms, we're seeing this gap emerge where the, the tech-savvy firms are doing better. And, and ironically, because of those challenges around tech adoption and just the fact that everybody gets comfortable in their businesses, we're, we're seeing an indirect effect that younger advisors are ending out with more profitable uh, faster growing firms because they're coming into the technology and they're more used to it. And so they're adopting it faster and they're seeing the results. Right. So um, what's next? Like if, if cloud tech and kind of this, what, what's on the horizon for advisors and technology? 
So to me, the, the big thing that's on the horizon for advisors and technology are what happens when all of these account aggregation style tools, like we had Mint.com a couple of years ago, but it was very slow to come into the advisor space. When tools like that start really coming into financial planning, I think it changes almost everything that we do in planning. Because one of the biggest challenges that we still have in giving advice to clients is you don't know if anything has happened in their lives that merits advice until we meet with them. So we end up in these traps, like right. we have to have meetings to find out whether we needed to have a meeting. But then if you have a meeting and you didn't need to have the meeting, then it just turns out to be a wasted meeting. Uh, when account aggregation tools start pulling all this information in, now suddenly the planning software says, well, we're pulling all this information. Here are three clients who are off track on their spending. Here's someone who's failing on their savings. And here's three people who, thanks to the interest rate decline last week, can refinance their mortgage and save a couple hundred bucks a month. And I think we're going to see a world very soon where the planning software starts really giving giving us guidance about what are the meaningful conversations to have with clients, which just means as an advisor, I get to spend more of my time having meaningful conversations with clients. No, that that's awesome. This has been a phenomenal interview. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. And um, yeah, so uh, check, out, Jody, check you, out the Nerd's Eye View. Yeah, Nerd's Eye View at Kitsis.com yes. and the Financial Advisors Success Podcast. Yes. Great. Thank you. to Let's Get Radical with Jody Paydar and Liz Gold. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-790. You may also send an email to Jody and Liz at letsgetradical.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Jody Paydar, and I'm here with Liz Gold, and you are listening to Let's Get Radical. And we are live at the AICPA Engage event, and there's like tons of people here. It's pretty cool because the vendor showroom is open, and we've got lots of a big audience here, and it's pretty cool. And I have to give a couple shout-outs to our sponsors because they have been awesome today. Um, First Global, as well as Walters Kluwer, have allowed us to be here and broadcast live from the Engage event, which is just really cool because it's a bunch of CPAs and financial planners hanging out together, learning all the latest things. And um, we're just learning tons. And and it's just been a wonderful afternoon so far. And I'm really excited because our next two guests, um, we have a world famous influencer in the financial planning space, um, Bob Burris. And I'm going to have him introduce himself. And we also have the president of First Global, who we interviewed earlier this morning, David Nock, and he's going to be with us here as well. So, um, Bob, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about um, your role and what you do? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually thinking about rebranding myself to Mr. <laughs> Radical here. So. Um, I, I'm basically a collector of information about what's going on and where it's going and, and who's doing what. And it really, the, the future, as I define it, is what works. And so I'm a kind of a connoisseur of advisors who are doing really interesting stuff that seems to be working because I think if it's working now then others are going to copy it and they're going to be doing more of it so I'm sort of a futurist and sort of a commentator and sort of a journalist and I'm getting radical here as we <laughs> as we talk so great and you were here today doing sessions you've been presenting what yeah I, I just did a session on the future of the profession um, I've written a book um, the, called The New Profession, which basically outlines the fact that financial planning, the goal of financial planning is to become a profession. It is not quite there yet, but it's 
that's that's where we're we're aspiring to go. And then it talks about all the different evolutionary changes and how people are adapting to those changes and who's doing what. And um, also publish a newsletter, which is part of the PFP section um, services that are provided to the members. So it's called inside information. So wait, so you said financial planning is not yet a profession? Yeah. What does that mean exactly? Well, a profession, as I think any CPA knows, you know, a profession has an established body of knowledge. It has the sanctioning of government bodies so that only certain people can call themselves that. You know, I can't call myself a CPA. And that's a good thing because the, the amount of knowledge I have about, you know, audit or tax planning or, you know, nobody has ever mistaken me for Bob Keebler. So, but I could call myself a financial planner and hang out a shingle and I could take clients and people would. So it, it, if an unqualified idiot like me can call himself a financial planner, we're not yet a profession. And I think the body of knowledge is evolving and I think we're still trying to figure out what is the societal role of a financial planner. I have my own opinions, but I think there's enough of a diversity of opinions that we haven't coalesced around one common definition. Until we do that, we're not a profession. Can I add just one thing to that real quick? And hopefully Bob would agree. I mean, another way you can see it just is if you look at the financial planning programs in schools, right? Offshoot of, you know, let's say home economics type programs. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily see it in Ivy League schools. I I think until you start to see it really show up in colleges and universities the way the accounting profession maybe does, I still think that's going to be hindrance to what Bob is describing. You know, it's funny. I did a presentation. um, I was a keynote presenter at the Academy of Financial Services annual meeting, and I said exactly that. I said, you know, the, you, you graduate with a certificate in financial services. You graduate in, you graduate in something, anything other than financial planning. You know, you're, a, you're an accountant with a, 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 a specialty in financial planning or a finance degree with a certificate mm-hmm. in financial planning. And I told them, you're, you're all going to have to get your act together and have a college for financial planning in every university. And um, I think the consensus was in about 100 years that'll happen. So yeah. we're, we're, we're right on that road now. <laughs> so how did you get into this line of work? And what keeps you interested and passionate? Or, you know, Well, passionate, it, passionate comes from I fell in love with this profession, I have to tell you. There, you, can, you can do more good as a financial planner for more people and get more personal satisfaction out of it than pretty much anything else. And I, I, one of the things I like about it is it's a wonderful blend of technical and personal. Hmm. You know, right. you, you, you have to know stuff to be a financial planner. You've got to be smart to be a financial planner, but you also got to be fun in a, in a certain sense. And that's one of the things that has always impressed me about the financial planning subset of the CPA world is that the financial planners in the CPA world, they're all fun and happy and engaging and easy to talk to. And not every CPA fits that description, as you understand. And so it <laughs> kind of you, you, the people who really have those characteristics tend to gravitate toward this part of it. So you asked where I started from. I was editor of Financial Planning Magazine and was named editor before I could balance my own checkbook. I was totally incompetent. Um, there, was, there, were no, there was no reason whatsoever to have hired me other than that I looked at the profession and decided, you know, I'd like to help hmm. somehow. And so I would go to people and um, I'd, I'd say, I'm a dumb journalist and, and you know what passes for financial journalism in the, in the trade, in the consumer press. <laughs> right. So you know that that's a, that's a term of art. Um, and I'd yeah. say, you know, use, use small words, speak slowly, and help me understand what you're doing and how you do it. And I might get 70% of it. Be mm-hmm. patient. Mm-hmm. And I've been climbing that learning, learning curve for 35 years. 
Wow. And there's no end in sight to that learning curve. It's like an endless cliff that just keeps going up. So what is the biggest change you've seen since starting and where we are now? Starting out, financial planning was mostly about helping people invest. Mm -hmm. And and that was the, the sole focus of most client engagements. Today, the client engagement is so much broader. It's, it's about so many more aspects of their lives, including, and I think this is tremendously important, this is what I talked about in my session, helping people understand what they want out of their lives. Most people are sleepwalking through their lives. They're wandering around. They're buffeted by this or that. They end up here. They're not sure how they got here. They're not really happy there. They live lives of quiet desperation because they don't have clarity about their goals and a path to get there and a coach that'll help them get there. And so I think the, the beauty of financial planning, if you will, the value of it, is helping people take control of their lives and move forward in a way that's um, intentional rather than just buffeted by random events. Hmm. And so That's you so see this whole behavioral financial planning huge as moving forward in the industry as well? Well, the behavioral finance stuff is just what you have to overcome. Okay. You know, most people, but the behavioral finance stuff, they're not measuring what I think is the big thing. Um, those are small heuristic glitches in the brain. You know, the, the big thing is most people don't have a clear direction. Right. And so helping them define the clear direction, once you do that, they have, they're among the one-tenth of one percent of the human population that knows what they want out of life and knows how to get there. Can I ask a question just related to that? I, mean, I don't I'll, think you should be asking. No. Okay. I, you know, I <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. so, so I mean, clearly you've spent a lot of time thinking about fiduciary standards and the role of fiduciary. How has that dialogue in the industry, I think, changed the consumer's view of what they should be asking their financial advisors? Well, the, the whole fiduciary thing, basically, the idea is, are you on my side or not? Mm. And being on the side of the consumer as opposed to being on the side of the house, if you will. You know, here we are, and in, in, we, we understand <laughs> what the house is here in Las Vegas, um, is, is, I think, key to knowing whether, you, whether you, you want to build trust with this person or not. And so a lot, of, a lot more people understand fiduciary. I'm not sure I understand fiduciary, truth <laughs> to tell, but it's a, it, it certainly has something to do with trust. And if you pledge to act on behalf of the consumer, I think that's a huge piece of the building trust, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been awesome, um, but we have to take a short commercial break. And when we come back, we'll be back on the Engage floor live in Vegas. Stay tuned. First Global was founded by CPAs who believe that accounting and tax professionals are uniquely qualified to add value to their existing client relationships by offering comprehensive wealth management services. First Global believes the time is now for one of America's most trusted professions to rise up and show the world the power of true CPA financial planning. When you partner with First Global, you can be more to your clients. Play large by unleashing the power of wealth management and let go of the idea that someone else knows what What's best for your clients? Visit First Global at 1stglobal.com. 
CCH Access from Walters Kluwer has the power to grow, manage, and protect firms in motion through its integrated modules. These include tax preparation, centralized document management, improving client services, streamlining accounting, and managing your projects and deliverables. Accelerate growth, enhance management, and protect your organization's reputation. Visit cchgroup.com to find out more or register for a demo so we can show you what we do. That's cchgroup.com. Engage your learning. Engage your network. Engage your future. The AICPA Engage 2017 event happens over four days, Monday, June 12th through Thursday, June 15th, at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. There are six conferences at the event, and you can attend one session, any session, or all sessions. Plus, if you can't make the trip, you can still take advantage of attending the event online. If you're in the accounting profession, this is a can't-miss event. Visit AICPAengage.com to find out more. That's AICPAengage.com. The world leader in Internet talk radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Let's Get Radical with Jody Paydar and Liz Gold. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Jody and Liz at letsgetradical.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Get Radical. I'm Liz Gold, and I'm here with Jody Pedar, and we are in the middle of the exhibit hall at the MGM Grand for AICPA Engage. Follow along at the hashtag AICPA Engage. And uh, we're talking with Bob Veris, who's an influencer and editor and publisher, and also um, David Knock. <laughs> and, <Got> it. <laughs> right, it was the first time saying it, so thank you. So before we get into trends, you know, Bob, I want to ask you about demographics. You know, how are the demographics in the financial uh, planning industry changing? Do you see them changing? Well, that's that's one of the trends, actually. That was, that was going to be my biggest oh. trend. So, <laughs> okay, I took it. So sorry. into trends. Well, we, 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 may, we may be jumping right to trend, okay, trends. Okay, that's fine. That's totally fine. Well, what what one of the things that that I have been uh, talking a lot about lately is is one of the big changes in the profession is we're going to have to change who the clients are. The baby boomers, who are the traditional clients of the the, the initial cohort of financial planners. Um, are becoming aging accumulators. And so we're going to have to move on to a different cohort. And the different cohort, of course, is Gen X and Millennials. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the planning profession moved in, I think, the wrong direction. One of the untold stories, great untold stories about the profession is that the initial founders of the profession worked with their unwealthy peers initially and made them wealthy. And they made them so wealthy that the planning firms that emerged out of that, they started to have asset minimums of 2 and $3 million. And that locked out the next generation of potential clients who didn't have the advantage of someone working with them when they were not wealthy and helping them become wealthy. So now we're going to have to rediscover how to work with people who are unwealthy. And that's going to that's gonna require a new service model, a new revenue model. There are a lot of adaptations are going to have to take place and leveraging technology. 
can I just add one thing to that too that I think is a huge hindrance to taking some of these steps is right now I don't think the financial planning profession or financial advisors actually see the market as existing in the way that they need to so I think you can bring resources and technology capabilities to firms but I still think until the firms themselves recognize that there's a market to be served there they're never going to approach them never going to bring up the conversations which is a shame right well the interesting thing to me though is is that the next generation um, who I myself am like sees that opportunity because our my peers are going through life events and our parents are dying and so there's this shift in wealth that's happening and we're needing financial planners sooner so but yet I want to go to someone who looks like me, talks like me, acts like me, not someone who has maybe 25 years of experience and like older than me. So um, it's interesting to me that, you know, that the market is shifting and people want to work who, with people who look like them. And yet um, the boomers aren't necessarily seeing that. Well, what the boomers are doing, they're hiring people like you. And they're saying, get out there and market to aging decumulators who have $3 million of assets, you know? (laughs) And they're they're saying, that's not my peers. That's not my cohort. That's not people I know. I can't. And and then they say, there's no clear way I can work with my peers under the the model that your firm has created. Mm. Right. So what I I tell the, the... people my age, um, I'm 65 years old. I look 35. I understand that. <laughs> and those of you who are watching this on video, you can tell that I look 35. The, um, what I'm telling them is tell your younger clients, make it a, or your younger advisors, make it a project for them to create a service model and a revenue model that's appropriate for their peers. And I tell them, the younger advisors, you owe it to your generation to bring financial planning back because it, it could conceivably be one of the biggest life changers of your generation's cohort that, that they'll ever experience. Right. And now the tools are starting to change enough because they're in the cloud and they're like that um, younger planners have tools that they want to work with. There are more software tools and leverage opportunities available now than there ever were. And, you know, I talked about one of the wonderful factoids that I throw out there is the next Intel chip on, on a PC is going to have as much processing power as the human mind. And the one after that is going to be double. So, you know, we're going to get intelligent software. We're going to get opportunities to leverage the wisdom and knowledge and intelligence of the advisors that we never had before. But a revenue model can be as simple as charging a subscription fee every month for providing simple cash flow analysis and giving advice on, on, on a simplified portfolio that will that makes more sense than, than what a lot of people... So now that um, because the, the boomers who own these established practices, they have really nice you know, revenue streams coming in, how, how can we help them realize that they need to go through succession or that they need to create change because the demographics of the world are changing? Well, two ways. One is I, I wrote a book on it and I, I pound this idea through my newsletter and, and, and my writings in, in, for Financial Planning Magazine. The other way, though, is the younger advisors. It's hard to recruit a younger advisor into a traditional planning firm that only services wealthy people. Right. And so eventually the, the dynamics of recruiting, the, the hunger for talent is going to require advisory firms to give that younger talent an opportunity to work with their peers. So you've got a dynamic. You've, you've got a dynamic of change already happening. Mm-hmm. What I'm telling 
the advisory founders is you'd better get on this bandwagon because it's it, it, or this train because if it leaves the station and you're not on it you're you're going to be a problem i'm trying i'm watching out for their interests it's going to happen regardless so do you see um kind of assets leaving firms yet or is this kind of on the horizon of assets under management leaving firms because there's a, a shift in wealth to the next generation and the next generation or the next generation says i want to work with someone who looks like me acts like me talks like me and and works with me digitally versus going to the guy, you know, um, at the in the office sitting down and, and stuff like that. I, I don't think there's a negative pressure. I think it's there's a positive pressure. The negative pressure. No, I don't see people losing assets right now yet. Yeah. But I do see people not taking advantage of this blue ocean opportunity that's sitting in front of them. There's probably 10, 20, maybe 30 potential clients who are unwealthy for every person who meets their asset minimum. They could be doubling, tripling their firm in size in, a, in fairly short order if they move into the blue ocean and their younger advisors are chomping at the bit to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Right. So you don't want to leave. So the, the, the pressure, I think, is, is missing out on an opportunity. And the first mover advantage is not to be sneezed at in this case. If you're locking up that market, then you're, if you're, if you're gathering in clients from that blue ocean, then you're going to have... A, a diversified portfolio of clients, if you will, going forward that other firms won't have. So, so speaking of diversity, I know you said diversified, yeah, <laughs> but, but you're changing the subject. That's I, I, That's I, a clever way to do it's it. It's a little pivot, <laughs> right? So, I mean, one of the biggest issues for accounting firms, you know, is bringing is diversity and inclusion, you know, and how how bringing in new populations of people that, yeah. you know, and how. They're people of color, women, you know, and millennials are also part of that. But, you know, how is the financial planning industry doing with that? Terrible. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> okay. I mean, take a look around you, you know. It's <laughs> so how, how can that change? Well, I, I think there needs to be a little more... The, the younger generation is, is a lot more multicultural than the older yes. generation was. And so their peers and cohort, they, 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 we just had, saw a session yesterday where somebody said, we don't even notice. My, my millennial generation doesn't even notice diversity until we see a lack of it in a boardroom somewhere where it's right. a bunch of old white guys. Yes, thank you for saying that. So <laughs> it, it's much easier to have your younger advisors recruiting their friends and neighbors who will happen to be indifferent. But there's a lot of work to do, particularly in the African-American community, where there isn't generational wealth. And so there's, there has to be a founding generation of generational wealth built, and there has to be an actual conscious outreach to talk, to deliver that message, to deliver a message that, you know, somebody's going to have to step up and, and build the generational wealth of your cohort within our society. And that's going to be, when I talk to millennials and say, you owe it to your generation, I think some people owe it to their racial or ethnic cohort as well to make these things happen. Can I add one thing to this, too? I mean, I think part of the challenge today is in order to be able to increase the diversity of the financial planning profession, you're largely relying on career changes. It goes back to our early conversation about colleges and universities. I don't think the profession is doing, or at least the industry is doing enough to encourage people in high school, in college, to be pursuing this as a career path. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the accounting profession is starting to do more with this, but the financial planning profession is not. Um, So unless we start minting people out of school who see this as a profession, who feel the sense of responsibility, 
responsibility Bob's describing, we're not going to fundamentally change the industry. Okay. Yeah. And where we have to close really, but I want to ask you, what what do you think is the top trend in the financial planning world that everybody should be I, I, I think it's that pivot to creating a revenue model and a service model for not not just the next generation, but as, as David said, you know, a, a, a much more diverse group of clients, the yeah. blue ocean. Move the prof, no profession only works with the wealthy. Yeah, right. To be a profession, we have to work with everybody. Yes. And we have, that blue ocean is everybody. Yes. Bob, David, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Please stay tuned. Thanks, we have more interviews coming your way. First Global was founded by CPAs who believe that accounting and tax professionals are uniquely qualified to add value to their existing client relationships by offering comprehensive wealth management services. First Global believes the time is now for one of America's most trusted professions to rise up and show the world the power of true CPA financial planning. When you partner with First Global, you can be more to your clients. Play large by unleashing the power of wealth management and let go of the idea that someone else knows what What's best for your clients? Visit First Global at 1stglobal.com. CCH Access from Walters Kluwer has the power to grow, manage, and protect firms in motion through its integrated modules. These include tax preparation, centralized document management, improving client services, streamlining accounting, and managing your projects and deliverables. Accelerate growth, enhance management, and protect your organization's reputation. Visit cchgroup.com to find out more or register for a demo so we can show you what we do. That's CCH Group. You are listening to Let's Get Radical with Jody Paydar and Liz Gold. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-790. You may also send an email to Jody and Liz at letsgetradical.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Jody Paynar, and I'm here with Liz Gold, and you are listening to Let's Get Radical. And we are live at the AICPA Engage event, and it's pretty cool. And um, we've been talking all day, and last year, (laughs) all day, we have not shut up at all. (laughs) And last year, I was at actually an AIM event, and I got to hear our our new guest um, speak, and I thought his session was the best session ever. So when I was looking at the lineup and who we were going to get as speakers, um, I I, I had to ask him if he would speak for us. And our guest is Scott Wayne, and he has like a crazy background, and he talks all about innovation and negotiation, and um, I'm just so excited to have him here. So I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell us a little bit about what exactly you do, because I'm still kind of like confused. Welcome, Scott. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. Well, before we get there, let's just say this is a crazy conference because there are, what, 4,000, 4,500 CPAs here. So many. We're at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, and we are located all of maybe 100 feet from swimming pools full of semi-clad people, and yet 4,500 people are choosing to be indoors listening to uh, lectures on running your CPA business. So clearly, this is a passionate group of people, and they're all sober right now. Right. 
So who am I and what do I do? So my name's Scott Wayne. I'm the founder of several companies, and we study how human beings make decisions. So we study the crazy choices that people make. So actually being in Las Vegas is a target-rich environment for us because we see people making choices that are completely irrational um, and taking risks in places they probably shouldn't, quite frankly. And so we look at organizational change. So we've got one company, The Frontier Project, that studies organizational behavior. So how companies and entities, employees interact. We have another company that's called Envoy that looks at how markets operate, so how consumers make choices in making buying decisions. And we try to deploy behavioral economics and negotiation theory to change those choices for good. Here. Well, let's not talk about the jail time, but aside from that... (laughs) Actually, I spent some time in jail uh, here in Las Vegas, but I was on the right side of the uh, right side of the rail, so to speak. So I was trained as a diplomat, and I worked for the British government. And a long time ago, I was Her Majesty's uh, Vice Consul to, amongst other places, Las Vegas. So I, I did actually spend a lot of time in Las Vegas prisons, uh, visiting Brits who were in jail here for all kinds of nefarious purposes. <laughs> and then occasionally we'd ship them back, sort of handcuffed to a Scotland Yard detective on a Virgin Atlantic flight. So I, I know the other side of Las Vegas more than the, uh, the party side. <laughs> of Las Vegas. So as a diplomat, and then we moved in the private sector, and now we help companies and big humanitarian organizations and foundations try to change employee and consumer behavior for uh, positive outcomes, whether that's around diversity or sustainability, but all tied to the bottom line of business growth. So it's trying to uh, pull uh, bottom line realities of, of working in a business system with trying to make the world a slightly better place. So you're speaking here. So yep. what, what was your uh, talk about? So uh, we gave two talks this morning that were connected to a similar theme. That this morning we were talking about innovation, and this afternoon we were talking about negotiation. Mm-hmm. And they're often tread as very uh, separate paths, but we were, but they're actually very connected because the one concept that really ties the two together is the the lenses through which we see the world. And so obviously CPAs are dealing with with data and numbers and facts, but in the world of decision making. Um, depending upon our backgrounds and how we see the world and our experiences in the world, we can take the same data set and perceive it very differently. And if we learn to put a different lens on the same information in the innovation world, that helps us identify opportunities. And in the negotiation world, it helps us to empathize with the other side to try to find mutual agreement. And so in a lot of cases, what we find in the innovation space is that clients just don't see the opportunities because they have a fixed way of thinking about it. And in the negotiation side of our work, we see that people get way too caught up in their positions and not being able to see the other side to be able to move to move things forward. And so that's where, where the two parties come together. So I read something, and I think it was maybe on your website, where you talk about the operating system of our approach, the updating the operating system of our approach to negotiation. Yes. So can you talk to me about that? What does that mean? So I would say, or we passionately believe that in... Uh, business culture today we've been dominated by what i call like an mba sales culture so there's a lot of training about selling and winning and beating the other side and if you Mm. look at the business textbooks it's all about victory and winning Mm -hmm. well negotiations about both sides winning and but we don't really teach negotiation in school in graduate school it's sort of a actually it's a new science in many ways uh there, there wasn't really a written theory of negotiation up until the 1980s there are all these practitioners But we're now, through neuroscience, being able to prove scientifically why various techniques in negotiation work. And so we can scan the brain and see what we knew worked historically, why scientifically that that works, and why things like the... um, 
the lighting in a room, the scent in a room affects how we perceive things and see things and mm -hmm. how our brains react to that. So my talk this afternoon was at 1.30 in the afternoon in a windowless conference room after lunch. Physiologically, you can guarantee that your audience isn't ready to learn, okay? <laughs> this morning, the innovation talk was at 9.20 in the morning. Everybody was caffeinated out of their brains. They were wide awake and very willing to listen to a talk. So like for like, you could almost guarantee that people preferred the former. And so we're constantly studying these things, but sales theory doesn't teach you that. It teaches sort of needs-based selling and challenges sales and all of that stuff. Negotiation teaches you to get into the head of the other people and really see the world from their perspective. And then just as you do in innovation, ideate paths forward to reach your outcome. Hmm. And there's one concept in there that we're pushing really hard, which is this idea of differentiating between your position on an issue and your interest in an issue. And the example we used this afternoon was around uh, gun ownership in the United States, where we're all caught up into our different positions. And please, let's not have a debate about gun ownership. We could go on for a, for a long time here. But it's a really great example of here is, a, here is an issue where we are caught up uh, with ideas of constitution and freedom and child safety and all of these things. And in order for us to reach agreement, in order for uh, you to be right, I have to be wrong and vice versa. So we get locked into these places. But if we were to ask the American public, would we like our children to be safe in schools? Everybody's going to say yes, absolutely. And that's our common interest. Mm. And in many cases, we're talking about the wrong thing. We're talking about whether I'm right and you're wrong. What we should be talking about is what is our common interest that, that we move forward? And that's really something that we, mm. we push pretty hard. So have you seen kind of the effects of, as you've studied this stuff, um, the ripple effects now of business owners learning from it and actually making concrete changes to their businesses or actually it helping them? Oh, absolutely. And, and in, in this industry, in the CPA industry, as with all professional services, there's no uh, objective test of whether a CPA is a good CPA or not. You can't do the Pepsi challenge. So you can't run the same scenario, the same situation and have two different firms with the same access running the same project. So the only thing as a, as a non uh, practitioner in the space, if I'm a client, I am a client of several CPA firms, the only thing that tells me whether that CPA is effective or not is everything actually around the work, the periphery of the work, how they present the information, whether I'm surprised by the bill, how I interact with the team, what level of communication you have with me, if you speak in my language or your language. But the actual core service Almost by definition, I'm not a practitioner, so I don't mm -hmm. really know. Right, you don't even good. know if it's I right or know. wrong. Yeah, maybe a few years later after the IRS investigation, <laughs> but I, but no, yeah. So it's everything else, and that can have dramatic effects on the the bottom line growth of of people in professional services. Once you realize that you're not really selling um, the core product, but you're selling the whole emotional experience of, mm -hmm. around it of engaging, mm -hmm. not the brand. Not the, the logo and that. It's not that. It's the it's the experience and, and what I'm buying. So am I buying uh, am I buying an audit service or a tax filing service? Am I really buying sleeping well at night with right. the insurance that I've got a great CPA firm that's looking out for me? And based upon what you think you're selling, you're going to negotiate very differently based on that. So for you, what makes a successful negotiator? Oh. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I'm one of them. I mean, I, that's, that's the other thing to say is that uh, you can be amongst the best, but you never really know whether you're the best. This is an art, not a science, and there are a lot of very good people out there who do this. Um, I think somebody who's a good negotiator is always interested in making sure that we make the pie bigger. Mm. not fighting over the pie. Mm. Right. And anybody who says there was a great negotiator because I won these negotiations, by definition, isn't a great negotiator because we should be talking about us both parties winning in some form or other. Yeah. Are we moving past the sort of that dichotomy that 
I win, you lose. Oh, we're sort of deep into it. We're ripping <laughs> our know, societies right? apart. And, we you are. Know, you, you speak to a Brit right now where the United Kingdom seems to be the home of every disaster <laughs> that could possibly go in terms of making lousy decisions. Um, <laughs> the, uh, no, I think what we're seeing actually is, is we're living more in, in these technology bubbles that we're actually pulling further apart where we're getting these self-reinforcing views and less practiced at seeing the other perspective. And it really is something that we need to be talking about on a much wider social basis is being less polarized or at least being in your poll, but being able to see the other side and talk about those differences. Well, thank you, Scott. This has been a phenomenal interview. I'm so glad that you were able to join us at the AICPA Engage event. And stay tuned because we're going to have more great interviews coming up. First Global was founded by CPAs who believe that accounting and tax professionals are uniquely qualified to add value to their existing client relationships by offering comprehensive wealth management services. First Global believes the time is now for one of America's most trusted professions to rise up and show the world the power of true CPA financial planning. When you partner with First Global, you can be more to your clients. Play large by unleashing the power of wealth management and let go of the idea that someone else knows what best for your clients. Visit First Global at 1stglobal.com. CCH Access from Walters Kluwer has the power to grow, manage, and protect firms in motion through its integrated modules. These include tax preparation, centralized document management, improving client services, streamlining accounting, and managing your projects and deliverables. Accelerate growth, enhance management, and protect your organization's reputation. Visit cchgroup.com to find out more or register for a demo so we can show you what we do. That's CCH Group. You are listening to Let's Get Radical with Jody Paydar and Liz Gold. To reach the show today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 790. You may also send an email to Jody and Liz at Let's Get Radical.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Jody Paydar, and I'm here with Liz Gold, and you are listening to Let's Get Radical. And we are live at the AICPA Engage event, and we've been here all day, and we've been having a phenomenal time having all kinds of interviews with all kinds of thought leaders, and it's just been a wonderful day, hasn't it been? Yes, and we're still standing. Actually, we're sitting right now. <laughs> we are, No, it's been a wonderful day. Of course it has, yes. And I do have to give some quick shout-outs to our sponsors who have been awesome to us all day long. We've been, um, our sponsors are First Global as well as Walters Kluwer. And so we have to give them lots of thanks and, and good things, good love, because they've been with us all day today and, and it's just been great. So, um, but we have a guest this segment and we're pretty excited to have him and his name is Peter Zion and he's like this world famous thought leader who travels around the world doing um, thought leader kinds of things. <laughs> so, so Peter, welcome. And can you introduce yourself and kind of tell us what it is you do? Sure. My name is Peter Zion. I'm a geopolitical strategist, which is a fancy way of saying that I help people make sense of the world and figure out the opportunities and challenges that will be facing them sector by sector, industry by industry, country by country in the years to come. How do you do that? 
<laughs> what's, what's your secret? <laughs> uh, there, there's no, well, I, I would say that the single most important thing is stepping outside of yourself and realizing that whatever it is that you want to see is absolutely irrelevant compared to how the world is actually going to turn out. And once you can do that, once you can kind of put your heart in a safety deposit box and look at things unbiasedly, you can look at personalities as different as Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and say, okay, <laughs> this is where this leads and this is how we got here. Right, right. How do you look at things unbiasedly? Geography, because the geography doesn't change. And if you can understand how a people interact with their space, then all of a sudden their culture makes sense and it will inform what happens with their politics and their economics and their finance and their population structure and everything. Do you have like an app that tells you how to do this? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, okay. uh, geopolitics is kind of a lost art in the United States. Uh, pretty much all universities stopped teaching it after the Second World War hmm. because we had this little thing called Bretton Woods. And we told all of the countries of the world that, you know, this... This fighting has got to stop. And so you're all on the same side now. Britain, France, Germany, Japan, China, you're all on the same side. You're all on our side against the Soviets. And we will actually pay you to be on our side. And for countries like Japan and Germany, who had just gotten out of a bruising war, which they lost in order to access land and resources and finance, they were a little bit, well, why didn't you do this like 15 years ago? We could have avoided a lot of pain. Uh, but that basically outlawed geopolitics. All of a sudden, location didn't matter because we were all part of the same network. The U.S. indirectly and directly subsidized everybody via the free trade model. Well, we did this to fight the Cold War. We bought up an alliance structure. This is how NATO happened. 1989, the Cold War ended. The only, the big flaw in the plan was that we won. And we have been coasting on that system ever since. We're still paying the price. We're still subsidizing the system, but... We're not writing anybody's securities policies anymore because the Cold War is over. And lo and behold, we've had a pushback on the left and the right across the American political spectrum. Everybody's done with it, and we don't know what's next. So we just came out of this bruising election cycle where the debate wasn't, should we internationalize or should we withdraw? It's over the speed of the withdrawal. And a President Hillary Clinton would have had this nice, calm, measured, announced structure for withdrawing us from the global system over four to eight years or president trump who's doing it a little bit less calmly over four to eight tweets uh, <laughs> it's just it's just a question of the speed uh-huh and if you are china or japan or korea or germany or britain or france or italy or anybody else who is dependent upon the old system the greatest period of peace and prosperity in human history was the last 70 years you're terrified. Yeah, you don't want change. Right. And so we've seen this litany of world leaders, leaders, 11 so far, come to Washington to have a conversation with Trump to discuss if they can get a bilateral deal. And some get it. So like Shinzo Abe out of Japan, he came with a $500 billion bribe. You know, if you want to cut a deal with Donald Trump, that's a great first step. <laughs> um, Angela right. Merkel, on the other hand, said you yeah. basically said... Do you realize that if you do what you say you're going to do with NATO and with trade, that that's not just the end of Europe, that's the end of Germany as a country? And Trump's response apparently was something along the lines of, uh-huh. And so that relationship is, for all intents and purposes, already over. 
And so it wow. re- it really affects everything because all these everything. countries, they have cultures and everything, and, and no one wants to agree, right? Well, the thing that worked through Bretton Woods is because everybody had been so devastated during the war and because the Americans were offering so much, you would be an idiot to turn it down. Uh, everyone got used to the United States paying for everything, doing all the heavy lifting, and at the end of the day, the Americans there, they would have your back. I mean, it was a great deal. And all you had to do was join the Cold War on the American side against the Soviets. That's it. Well, for the last 30 years, we've had this succession of administrations, Clinton, Bush W., uh, Obama, who let the system go on autopilot. Mm. So the United States still provided these public goods for the global commons, but the U.S. didn't get anything in return. So everyone became used to the Americans paying the bill and not asking for anything in return. And no, say what you will about Trump. Dude's got great timing. Because mm. no matter who was president, this was the presidency where it was going to be over. And if we were ever going to have a time when a Trump doctrine might actually work, it's now. So he's just like ripping the Band-Aid off fast. Uh, if, if that's how you treat cancer, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, gotcha. And, and so now how does like world economics fit into all of this? And why should CPAs be concerned about it? Or why should CPAs need to understand it? Everything about global trade is based on supply chains, maritime shipment, and global finance. And all of that is about to collapse. Because if you don't have the Americans providing for security of the oceans, then you cannot build things in more than one place where you have to link it via water. So the only supply chains that are going to survive intact are ones where the production, the raw materials, and the consumption are either physically secured or ideally co-located. The only place in the world that that happens right now is North America. So the United States, which always thought of Bretton Woods as a security policy, not an economic policy, we never bet our economy on global trade. Only about 8% of our GDP comes from exports, merchandise exports. The rest of it is internal. No other country in the world can say that. So you've got this massive disruption that's about to hit. The U.S. is broadly fine in its own little bucket, especially if you include the NAFTA partners. And you're going to have this massive capital flight, and this massive manufacturing... so much for tuning in to Let's Get Radical. Please join Liz Gold and Jody Paydar again next Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. This week, it's time for you to get radical. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 